here, buddy? What is it? Remember Christ our God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. There's three things you should know about that video. One, that is Aaron's own arrangement of that, which you can find if you will go to the website, Aaron Pelsu Band. You can download his Christmas album. It's incredible. Second, those are his kids. How cute were they hanging around the Christmas tree? 
And then third, you're going to hear part of that, the Christmas Eve service. So you want to have people here for Christmas Eve, so invite, 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 invite. Get people here and uh, avoid uh, those last two services on Christmas Eve because that's when our guests are going to come in off the street. And then if you get tickets and you're not going to use, please return them so that other people can use them because a lot of these services will be sold out. We won't have tickets available, so make sure you return them. One other thing, we only have a couple of weeks left in the year. We are less than two-tenths of one percent behind meeting budget. So I want us to finish strong. I want us to be able to celebrate that. And I know that you're going to do that. And we're just going to, we're just going to have a great, great, great year of 2020 because you're helping us set ourselves up for that. Now I want to begin by just asking you a question this weekend. Have you ever discovered that sometimes our plans don't go as we expect them to go? And sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's not. I remember when the church was small, we, we had these incredible plans. There was like a hundred of us, right? We were going to go to Jordan Lake. We were shutting down church one weekend. We were going to go to Jordan Lake. We were going to camp out in a group campground. You were going to bring your jet skis. We were going to have baptism. We were going to roast marshmallows. It was going to be incredible, right? So we all get out there on Saturday. There's only like a hundred people to the church of those days. And we set our tents up, man. And, and we, we get out in the afternoon. We're going to have baptism in the lake. I get the first lady in the lake to be baptized and a snake swims by. She literally turned into Jesus. She walked right out of the water on top of the water. It was amazing. Never got anybody else baptized. It was the biggest disaster in the history of Hope Community Church. Finally went to bed about 9.30. Have you ever slept with a bunch of Christians in a campground? It's like sleeping in, sleeping in the middle of a pig farm. I mean, they're snoring and snorting and all kinds of noises going on. And then about midnight, there's a clap of thunder and the most hellacious downpour. You have, I mean, literally, our campground became a river as torrents of water were rushing through. And our tents were soaked. Our sleeping bags were soaked. Our, our clothes were soaked. It was midnight, pitch black. You couldn't pack up and go home. And we sat there miserable all night and got up in the morning. We were like the Hebrew people in the wilderness. I mean, we were just some bitter, bitter people. Sometimes don't, things don't go as you plan and you look back and, and that's kind of funny, right? Sometimes things don't go as you plan and it's not funny. For example, it's not all that funny. Say you have a dream for your life, a dream for your marriage, your children, your finances, a dream maybe for your career or your education. And then you wake up one day and you realize, wow, it's not going to happen. Not only is it not going to happen, it can't happen. And it seems like when we get to one of those moments, it's as if life is spinning out of control and we don't know what to do because, see, this is what we've planned our entire life around. This was our hope. This was our vision. This was our dream for our life. For example, it's when you and your spouse realize that you're not going to live happily ever after. It's just not going to happen. I actually had a lady tell me before the service that she'd been married for 20 years, and then one morning she got up, and her husband told her he was gay. And she realized, we're not going to live happily ever after. It's that kind of moment. It's when you realize during the engagement that the actual wedding ceremony isn't going to be a reality. See, It's when you find out from the doctor that you're not going to have children. Or maybe it's when you realize that you're going to have to shut down uh, the business that you invested your whole life in. It's when you realize you're not going to get into the school that you've always dreamed about getting into. See, most of us have lived long enough to wake up one day and have it hit us. Wow, the hope, the dream that I had for my life, it's not going to happen. And not only is it not going to happen, it can't happen. It's impossible. 
Now, if you're visiting this weekend, we have been in a series on the life of David, looking at some of the lesser-known stories, and we're calling the series Life Lessons. This weekend, we come to another one of those lesser-known but yet fascinating stories from the life of David. And in this story, we find the great King David of Israel sitting on the back of a lowly donkey, heading out of Jerusalem, and on the back of that donkey, it hits David, my dream isn't going to happen. It can't happen. And I think in the midst of what have, must have been overwhelming emotion, overwhelming despair, we are going to learn some truths this weekend that's going to allow us, I believe, to experience the grace of God in our lives like maybe we've never experienced it before. Wouldn't that be cool? So if you have your Bible, 2 Samuel 15, if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. We're going to put the verses up on the screen. I want to begin by giving you a decade of history in about two minutes. See, all the money I'm saving you, not having to go to cemetery, I mean seminary. But let me just give you a decade of history in two minutes. One of the more well-known stories in the life of David, and we'll look at this a little bit last week, next week, we'll hit on it a little bit, is the affair that he had with Bathsheba. Remember that? He, he saw her, he lusted for her, he brought her to the palace, he had sex with her. What he didn't plan on was Bathsheba getting pregnant. Not only did she get pregnant, she got pregnant while her husband, who was in David's army, was away in battle. So there's no way she could convince her husband that it's his. And so David decides to bring her husband Uriah home from battle to give him a little leave. This way they'll sleep together and it will at least seem like it's his baby. But Uriah comes home, but he's a man of integrity and he's like, I'm not sleeping with my wife. I'm not sleeping in the comfort of my bed, not while my fellow soldiers are away fighting. And so David sends him back to the battlefield, and he literally carries orders that he gives to the commander that say, at the right time, have all the other soldiers retreat, put Uriah up at the front of the battle so that he'll get killed. So David not only has an affair with Bathsheba, he sets up her husband's death. What a mess. Total mess. And you would think it couldn't get any worse than this, but it actually went from worse to worser. I don't know if that's a word or not if you're an English teacher, but it went from worse to worser. And as a result of all of this chaos, David's family falls completely apart. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. David has already been promised by God that one of his sons is going to follow him as the king on the throne of the nation of Israel. Now David naturally assumed it would be Amnon. Amnon is his firstborn. That was protocol. Your firstborn took your place on the throne. Here's the problem. Amnon fell in love with his half-sister, who was named Tamar. She was David's daughter by another marriage. By the way, if you do the research, you'll discover that David had at least 12 wives. So Tamar is Amnon's half-sister, but he's madly in love with her. In fact, he is so obsessed with her that one day Amnon fakes being sick, stays in his room, stays in bed. Tamar, out of the goodness of her heart, brings Amnon something to eat. And when she comes into the room, he attacks her and he rapes her. And David finds out about it, but he does absolutely nothing about it. But when Absalom who is David's third-born son, who also happens to be, stay with me now, Tamar's blood brother, when he hears about it, well, that's a whole different story. He is absolutely furious, but not only is he furious, he's also very, very patient. And he allows two years to go, two whole years to go by so that things can settle down. And then Absalom, after waiting two years, 
plans a huge dinner party, invites all of his brothers and sisters. And at that dinner party, in front of all of his siblings, Absalom kills Amnon for what he did to his sister. And then Absalom leaves the city of Jerusalem. David hears about the murder, but now he's really between a rock and a hard place because his first son, Amnon, has been killed and he's been killed by Absalom, but the problem is Absalom is David's favorite. He's the apple of David's eye. And once again, David does nothing. Three more years go by. David is now thinking that things have settled down, and so he gets word to Absalom, and he invites Absalom back to Jerusalem. And Absalom returns to Jerusalem, but David won't have anything to do with him. David won't talk to him. David won't see him. He won't do anything with Absalom. Two more years go by. And David finally restores Absalom to his inner circle. And I'm sure that by restoring him, David is thinking one day Absalom will take the throne as the next king of Israel when I'm finished being king. So he brings him back to the palace. And for four years, four years, everything seems to be going well. Everything seems to be okay. But what David doesn't realize is that Absalom still has all of this unresolved, all of this pent-up anger against his dad. And so eventually Absalom begins to secretly behind his dad's back recruit people to follow him. Let me show you what it says, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 5. Whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. In other words, the people respected David, but they absolutely loved Absalom. So Absalom is, this, is going on. He comes up with a plan to take the throne from his dad, and it's only going to involve one little skirmish. Let me show it to you. It's 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 10. It says, Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, not knowing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's, follow, Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. And then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following and suddenly David realizes that the future is nothing like he dreamed, nothing like he planned, nothing like he hoped, nothing like he had envisioned or anticipated. In fact, everything has gone wrong. And in this one afternoon, David's hopes and dreams about how God is going to demonstrate faithfulness to him by having a son on the throne, it all begins to disintegrate. And David realizes there are no good options. He realizes if he stays and fights, regardless of who wins, the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. If he goes to war with his own son, 
Well, one of three things are going to happen. Either David's going to be killed, Absalom's going to be killed, or maybe they're both going to be killed. And even if David captures Absalom alive, he faces the reality that he is going to have to execute his own son, the apple of his eye, for treason. So David and his family scramble around. They pack up all their valuables and they pack up all the photos and they pack up all the keepsakes and they load up their mules and their donkeys and their horses and they begin to make their way out of Jerusalem. And as they're making their way out of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, they line the streets weeping as their once great king now flees for his life from his own son. And as David rides out of town, he has to be thinking, God, how in the world did this ever happen? I mean, God, we worked through all the hard stuff. The affair with Bathsheba, me having her husband killed. God, we've dealt with that. I came to you. I, 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 my soul was wasting away. The guilt was killing me. I confessed it, and you, you said that you restored me. You wiped me clean. You washed me white as snow. You gave me back the joy of my salvation. Just read Psalm 51. Hey, we've worked through all of that, God, and now I'm at the place where I'm actually supposed to be turning over the throne to Absalom. And now this. I mean, God, what good can possibly come out of this? And in the midst of this overwhelming situation, David gives us a truth that sheds some insights into the ways of God, a truth that we need to understand. But before we look at that truth, I want to say something to all of you who are listening this week in whatever campus you're at, whether you're watching online, those of you who can identify with David, you identify to his situation because you have come to the reality that life is not working out the way you planned it to work out. So you've realized that your hopes, your dreams, your plan, they're not going to come true. They're not going to be a reality. And when we are faced with that kind of hard, cold reality, after that sense of frustration begins to fade, after the disappointments begin to fade, those emotions are often followed by anger. And we just get so mad. We get so angry because life just wasn't supposed to be this way. I mean, you're sitting here this weekend, you've been saving yourself for the right person. You've been living within the circle of blessability, doing it the right way, God's way. Now you're 40, 45 years old, you're still single. And you're like, God, hello. Really? I'm waiting. I've been doing it your way. I don't want to be single forever, right? Or maybe you're here this weekend and you took your vows very, very seriously and you've remained faithful, but your spouse cheated and blew up the marriage and the family. And you're thinking, what's the point? Or maybe you wouldn't compromise your integrity at work when your boss asked you to. And as a result, you ended up losing your job. And you're thinking, what's the point, right? We get angry. We get frustrated. And as our anger and our frustration boils over, there, there's a part of us, if you're honest, if I'm honest, where we want to say, God, you know, if it's, going to be this way, then forget it. I mean, after all my faithfulness, after all my service, after all my commitment to you, God, if this is the way you're going to reward me, I'm done. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Who cares what the consequences are, but it can't, it can't be any worse 
than this. And I think there's something inside of all of us where we kind of want to just throw character out the window. We want to break all the rules. We want to live it up. I mean, you might as well party your brains out and let the good times roll after a while. What's the point of being faithful? What's the point of living within the circle of blessability? What's the point of following all of God's principles and laws and truths and precepts if this is the payoff? I mean, why bother? You ever feel like that? We all feel like that. We all get to those times in our life. But do you know what the tragedy is when we respond that way? The tragedy is it still doesn't put our shattered dreams or our shattered world back together. It still doesn't restore what we've lost. It doesn't heal our hurt. It doesn't help us find peace. In fact, you know what it does? It sends us down a road that ultimately results in just more pain and more hurt, more consequences. Now for David, fortunately, he's been here before. In fact, if you were here the first week of the series, we saw that David had issues with King Saul, big issues. I mean, Saul wanted to kill him, that's a big issue, right? And so David ends up fleeing for 14 years for his life from King Saul. And there was a time when he was fleeing, if you'll remember, when David said, God, if this is the way you have my back, if this is the best you can do, God, you know what? I think I'll just take control of my life. And do you remember what happened? He left Jerusalem, he made his way down to the city of Nob, and he took matters into his own hands, and it became an absolute disaster. And now we find David, years later, He's heading out of Jerusalem for the second time, but this time he knows one thing for sure. And this is what he's thinking. I'm not turning my back on God. I am not losing hope. I am not giving up on God. Been there, done that, and I know how that ended up. So what does David do? How does he respond? Well, look at 2 Samuel 15, verse 23. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Zadok was there, too, and all the Levites who were with him carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. All the entourage that was with David, until they had all made their way out of the city. By the way, if you were here last weekend, I mentioned that this is a period of time where the presence of God re resided in a box that was known as the Ark of the Covenant. And if you weren't here last weekend, I encourage you to listen to that message. And we learned in that message that whoever had possession of the box they were in good shape, right? Life was good for those individuals. I mean, when you went into battle, you made sure you took God in the box. Because you see, if you had God in the box, you won. And it was because the presence of God was attached to that box. It was attached to the Ark of the Covenant. So listen, when David and his guys are packing up the palace, packing up to leave Jerusalem, you know what they're thinking? We're taking the box with us. We may leave our wives. We may leave our children. Heaven forbid, we may have to leave our golf clubs, but we are not leaving the box. Because whoever has the box, things work out good. Whoever has the box, that's who wins. So they pick up the Ark of the Covenant, they start taking it out of Jerusalem with them, and as they're making their way out of Jerusalem, David stops, and he looks at the Ark, and it hits him what's about to happen. And so David says, listen, stop. Everybody stop. Everybody stop. Whoa change of plans. I want you to take the ark back to Jerusalem. 
And his entourage is like, uh, you're going to send God back to Jerusalem? And of course you're thinking, can we go with him? You know, that's what they're thinking. Now here's my question. Why would David decide to send the ark back to Jerusalem? Well, David made the decision because see, he realized that in taking the ark with him, what he was really trying to do is he was attempting to manipulate the situation. He wanted to make sure that he was in control of the situation because after all, whoever has the box wins. But as he's making his way out of Jerusalem, all of a sudden it hits him. You know what? That's not what this is all about. In fact, look what he says in 2 Samuel 15, verse 25. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Notice this next phrase. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Now you may not understand the implication of what David just said, but this is the life lesson for this week. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Now I'm just gonna warn you ahead of time. What I'm about to say, this is gonna sound like an oversimplification of the answer for the solution, what's going, the specific issue that you're dealing with in your life right now. Whatever that dream is that died, that plan that's not gonna become a reality. It's gonna seem like an oversimplification, but I'm telling you, this is the answer. What I'm about to share with you is, regardless of what's going on in your life, when life is not working out as you thought it was gonna work out, this is how you find peace. This is how you maintain peace. David basically says this, God, here are my plans, here's my hopes, here's my dreams. This is what I assumed you wanted for my life. God, I want you to take all these things, and I want you to do with them whatever you want to do with them. Not my will. Your will be done. So God, you just do whatever you need to do. I'm sending the, backs, the box back, and I am placing all my cares, all my hopes, all my dreams, all my plans on your providential grace. And it's interesting, if you read the rest of the story, you will discover that this decision of sending the ark back to Jerusalem actually created the context for God to fulfill his promise to David of having an heir, having a son, follow him on the throne of Israel. But what I want to point out is that by making this decision, David avoided three mistakes that we often make when life isn't going as we think it should go. Here's the first one. David didn't attach his faith in God to the fulfillment of his dreams. Have you ever done that? I meet people all the time like, what happened, you used to be in church, yeah, but my life just fell apart and I just kinda lost faith in God, you know? I've actually had people say, you know what, my life didn't go as I thought it was gonna go as a Christian, I don't even, I don't even believe there is a God anymore. 
you know. But see, David didn't fall into that trap. He avoided that mistake. It wasn't if my dreams go away, my faith goes away. It wasn't if, if my dreams die, my faith in God dies. He avoided that. Here's the second thing. David didn't attach his faith in God to his assumptions about how God would fulfill his promise. In other words, just like us, David had a promise of God. And just like us, he assumed that he knew how God was going to fulfill the promise of him having an heir on the throne. He assumed it would be his firstborn uh, Amnon. And if that didn't work, he just knew that there was Absalom and he was waiting in the wings. See, that's not the way it went down. But fortunately for David, he didn't attach his faith in God to his assumption about how God would fulfill his promise. In other words, just because it didn't go down the way David thought it was going to go down, David didn't lose faith in God's ability to ultimately fulfill the promise. By the way, what is God's promise to us? What is God's promise to you and me? God's promise is simply this. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. That's his promise. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. But here's a bigger question. What does it look like? Well, my guess is in most of our minds, it looks like this. We're going to have, we're, we're going to be healthy. And not only that, we're going to have kids and they're going to grow up healthy. And it means that our marriage is going to stay together. And it means that our kids are going to grow up and mature and do all the things that we envisioned them doing. And it means that we're always going to have a fulfilling job and we're always going to have enough money and life is going to be great. Those are the assumptions that most of us attach to God's promise. I'm never going to leave you and I'm never going to forsake you. It's a huge mistake to assume that. Sure, we have ideas. Sure, we have visions of the future. Sure, we have hopes and dreams of what our life is going to be like. But see, now David, he's older. Now David is wiser. And so he didn't attach his faith in God to his assumptions about how God was actually going to fulfill that promise. And here's the third one. David didn't take matters into his own hands and try to manipulate the situation. He just looked at the box and said, you know what? Take it back. Take it back. We'll just let God sort it all out. You know? And if God chooses to bring me back to Jerusalem and he allows me to be restored to the throne as the king, awesome, so be it. But if God chooses not to bring me back to Jerusalem, if he chooses not to restore me to the throne, so be it. And some of you are thinking that sounds like fatalism. You know, whatever happens, happens. But it's really not. It's actually just putting all of your trust, all of your faith, all of your hope in God. It's, it's praying for God to give you a vision for your life. Give you a vision for your family. Give you a vision for your education, your marriage, whatever it is, your career. And you go after it with all your might. But in the process of going after it with all your might, you say, God, this, this is what I'm going for. But here's the bottom line, God. You do whatever you need to do. Because at the end of the day, God, it's not about my will. It's not about my plan. It's not about my hopes and dreams. God, at the end of the day, it's about your will being done. So understand, based on the lessons from the life of David, you have an option when you realize that life isn't working out the way you thought it was going to work out. 
You have the option of letting your emotions sweep you into all kind of self-destructive behavior, self-destructive relationships, or you have the option of saying, just like people sitting around you this weekend who lost their spouse but didn't lose hope, just like the people sitting around you this weekend who lost a child but didn't lose hope, just like people sitting around you this weekend who've lost all kinds of things like relationships and businesses and dreams, but they didn't lose hope. So you have the option of saying, God, this really stinks. And God, this is the opposite of what I had planned for. This is the opposite, God, of what I had dreamed for when it comes to my life. But God, just do to me what you need to do to me. And whatever you do to me, God, I am not going to turn my back on you because I know where that ends up. So just do to me whatever you need to do, and I will accept it. It's coming from the hand of a loving father. Wow. But that's the secret to peace. There's an old poem. It's called In Acceptance, Lie of Peace. A few years ago, I, I went through one of those this is not what I planned. This is not what I had hoped. This is not what I dreamed. This is not how I saw my future. And I was just kind of blindsided. And when it went down, I'm not gonna lie to you, a, a, a part of me died. I just felt like a part of me died. And honestly, I don't know that I will ever recover from it. If I, I have to remind myself, on almost a daily basis, this is the new reality. This is the new reality. Things aren't ever gonna be the same. This is the new reality, but without a doubt. 100% darkest time of my life. And I went the gamut of every emotion you could possibly, I went through depression, I went through anger, I felt betrayed. I'm embarrassed to say, but I definitely experienced hate. And I remember where I was when I finally got to the place where I said, God, I never saw this coming. And this is not how I planned it. But God, you, you do to me whatever you need to do but whatever you do, I'm not going to turn my back on you because I know where that ends up. See, that's not, that's not fatalism. It's just being able to see that whatever comes into our life ultimately comes into our life through the sovereign hand of God. And although I will never understand it, I've just accepted that. And it's certainly not the way I would have designed it. I, I accept it from the hand of a loving father. You know, I for years have talked about the 50-20 principle. And I take the 50-20 principle from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And it was after Joseph, remember he was sold into slavery and betrayed by his brothers, and then there's that great reunion, and they see him and they start to apologize. And what did David say after all these years? He said, you meant it for evil. 
but God, he meant it for good. And that's the only thing that keeps me going some days. You meant it for evil. But I know that God, because he is sovereign, is going to do something good. And that's where I get my peace. And doesn't that just make sense? Right. And it, at the end of the day, isn't, isn't regardless of what's going on, isn't, there where you, isn't that where you want to be? I'm going to ask us just to bow our heads and, and I'm going to pray. But before I pray, let me just remind you of something. It's a verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that almost sounds like a cliche. It just says, all things work together for good for those who love God. Those who are called according to his purpose. Do you know what's included in that all things work together for good? Uh, the plans that we have that aren't God's plans because we make our plans, but God directs our steps. All things work together for good. Do you know what that includes? Dreams that are crushed. Hopes that will never be realized. But at the end of the day, you know what? You either believe it or you don't. It's called faith. It's called faith. And how else would you like to live your life? It's the only way. Let me pray. Father, let our prayer simply be this. God, I don't like this, and it's not the way I planned it. But you do whatever you need to do. I am not going to lose hope and trust and faith in you. God, I know that by accepting your plan and not my plan, and I know that by embracing your will and not my will, that's where I will find peace. Even in the midst of turmoil, even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of disappointment, even in the midst of pain. Give us that kind of confidence in you and who you are. We thank you for your love for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We are so excited to be a small part of all the great things that God is doing in and through your life. If you would like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download the Hope app to find out ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. And if you'd like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus. 